From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado's population is growing fast. We talk with the state demographer about the stories behind the statistics. Then, the pandemic's impact on RTD. Who's writing and what might the future hold? Well, I think if anything, it really showcases that public transportation is interwoven into the vitality of the community. And we remember the life of Pueblo civil rights activist Ruth Steele. I think she was enamored with Dr. King and all of the work that he did. We did everything we could to make sure that we kept his dream alive. Plus, a pilot program allows teachers and child care centers to earn bachelor's degrees as they work. It's the latest in CPR's series, The Workforce Behind the Workforce, exploring possible solutions to Colorado's critical shortage of early child care educators. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver, Aurora, Glenwood Springs, Grand Junction, Boulder, Pilots Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. These recent months have been tough for everyone, but month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Colorado's population has grown a lot in the past decade. In fact, it's the 12th fastest growing state in the country in 2019. But where are all these new people coming from and what could they mean for the future of the state? Elizabeth Garner is the state demographer with the Colorado Department of Local Affairs. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hi. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. Colorado is one of the fastest growing populations in the country. Where is that growth coming from? So I think first it's important to put into the context that really 12th fastest isn't huge. Uh, There's a lot of other states that are growing faster and by more people. Where When they are coming to Colorado, typically, I mean, we attract people from all over the country, but our largest donors end up tending to be California, Texas, Florida, Arizona, New York. Uh, so we get them from both coasts, and which is nice. I mean, it's nice to see that Colorado is attractive to people from any part of the country. And what areas of the state are seeing the most growth? So over this decade, really most of the growth has been along the front range. So anywhere from Larimer and Weld County down to Colorado Springs and some in Pueblo. Uh, Definitely, it's very correlated with job growth. As we grow more jobs, we need more workers. And so since we've also been growing more jobs in the front range, it's paired with that. And as a state demographer, are you also watching people who already lived in Colorado move around the state and seeing where those different areas of population are growing or declining? Absolutely. Uh, and we, this decade has been a little bit weird. Uh, we've seen most of the growth, like I said, along the front range, and we've seen declines in a lot of the rural parts of the state, especially the Eastern Plains, San Luis Valley, like northwest part of the state. And a lot of times they will relocate into counties that are more along the front range. Again, it's kind of this job attraction component as well. 
And we're talking a lot about numbers of people moving from one place to another, other states or around the state. What are you seeing as the story behind those statistics when you look at those large movements? You know, again, it, everything is connected. It's important to see that uh, we start with a certain population. You know, we have these births and deaths. Then we've got this concept of um, labor force. And so a lot of areas that, again, are growing more jobs than there are people will end up migrating those people in. And no county really is unique this decade in terms of they took the lion's share or anything like that. I mean, if you look across the front range, I mean, Larimer and Weld, so the North Front Range has definitely uh, had a lot of growth this decade. Same though with Douglas County and Colorado Springs, and then even the Denver metro area. And so Denver even is a little unique in terms of it has been consistent growth, but there's been a lot of housing unit development. If you look at you know, what's gone on in the uh, Central Park neighborhood, up toward the airport. There's been a lot of housing growth. So it makes sense where the, where you grow housing also ends up being where you grow people, but also where you grow jobs. You know, I think it's the Eastern Plains, uh, San Luis Valley, West Slope, that have struggled this last decade in terms of just continuing to be able to attract and retain Workers and Colorado as a whole has started to have a little bit of a challenge. Our housing prices are pretty high compared to national averages. And so, even starting after 2015, 2016, we started to slow down in our growth relative to the country. We were ranked two in the country for uh, population growth, and now we're 12th. So, we've definitely slowed down. And I think a lot of that really has to do with the fact that we've got you know, really expensive housing. So what I hear you saying is that jobs and the availability of housing are really some of the main movers of people and that our population growth actually slows as those things are more or less or rather less available. Is that right? Absolutely. And I think that's the key takeaway is, you know, a lot of people are very pro job growth, but then they're like, yeah, no, but I'm not excited about people. I don't want any more people. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, you've got to work on this story because a job is a person and a housing unit's where that job sleeps at night. So it's hard to be pro-job growth and anti-people each or these, anti-housing. Right. Each of these numbers has a full person behind it with a full story. Um so Latinx and Hispanic people are a fast growing population in Colorado. And obviously, even though folks show up together in demographic information, Hispanic people are not a monolith. Can you shed some light on the stories behind this number? And what are some of the reasons that these communities are growing in Colorado? So the reason um, that the Hispanic or Latinx population is growing faster really has to do with our age distribution. Um, and I'm not going to try and go into the weeds too much, but our Hispanic population is much younger. When you're younger, you tend to have higher birth rates. And so it's really that population that's having more kids. So if you look at our population under the age of 18 or even under the age of 20, there's about a 38% of our population is Hispanic compared to if you look over the age of 65, it's a very low number. It's like less than 10%. And 
So with time, we're actually going to grow into becoming a more diverse state simply because our younger population is more diverse. They're the ones that are going to age into the age groups that have kids. And so it's just going to take a little bit more time for Colorado to become a little bit more diverse. Let's look into the future of Colorado's demographics. We do know that the state's population is also aging rapidly. What does that mean for the state overall? You know, it's a weird dichotomy. We've got, we're the sixth youngest, but we're the fourth fastest aging. And so you're like, what? How does that happen? Well, we're able to attract young adults. So we migrate people in, they tend to be young. So that's why we're still really young. But our first group of young adults that came to Colorado were in the 70s. They were the baby boomers. So we've got this large group of 60-somethings in the state. And they're aging into that 65-plus, 70-plus age group where we didn't really have very many people to begin with. So this actually is a huge transition for Colorado. It impacts our labor force. It impacts the jobs that we're creating. It impacts housing. It impacts income, transportation, health services, across the board because you change your behavior by age. And a 60-something, 70-something definitely acts differently than a 20-something. And so it's working on creating the systems within Colorado to manage both really well. Healthcare systems is one I imagine that an aging population certainly affects. How do you think about that as a demographer? Well, we've been watching health services over the last couple of decades and, you know, even projected that that would be our fastest growing industry simply based on our aging. And that's panned out. That is what we've seen. Our fastest growing job growth area has been health services. And it's important to follow and watch. And, you know, what's interesting is that we're still really young. So we're only kind of really growing fast at the 60 to 65, up to about 70. But that's not necessarily where we always need a lot more health services. Just wait till we have the fast growth at the 75, 85 plus, where health services are a much larger share of the demands or needs for that population. So it's accurate to project job growth in healthcare based on the numbers that you had seen previously. Can you give us some other projections based on what you've seen in this this crop of data? Well, what's what's also interesting looking at um, spending patterns on how different people spend their dollars, especially the older population, they also spend more of their dollars on what you would call accommodations food service, so eating out. And we've seen that pan out as well, that we've seen a lot of growth in the food service industries. And so that's also forecast to continue to increase. Likewise, we've seen a lot of growth in what we call professional and business services. So, you know, all of your kind of more high-tech business services type of folks, that's been a strong job growth area. For Colorado, I think it will continue to be so, and we'll see that out through the future as well. But what's interesting is, again, they tend to make a little bit more money. So they spend more dollars out, you know, getting coffee, having lunch. Uh, And so that's also generating more demand for the food service industry. 
That's interesting. I want to go back to something that you said earlier about, you know, people are for creating jobs, but they don't necessarily see new people in the state. And one of the big reasons, one of the big complaints we get is about just growth of street traffic. And that's a really clear way that people can see population growth. But what are some other systems that would be under strain or that people could could see population growth if this continues? Right. I think, you know, transportation tends to be number one. Um, because, you know, that, you know, nobody likes to sit in traffic. So we've seen that. I think we'll continue to see that as a stressor. The other pieces really are, are there enough services, you know, to provide um, what you need? And so even looking at health services, uh, looking at sometimes even, you know, like recreation services, you know, the demands that at the population has put on our outdoor recreation system. You know, some people see it as very positive and it's been a big job growth area. But it's also, you know, when you have to wait in lines to go skiing or hiking or can't find a parking spot to go on your hiking trail, I think people will see that as well. Certainly water will continue to be a constraint. Uh, we've become much more efficient in our water use but we'll see stressors on our water systems uh, out into the future as well. And then I think the other big one that we've all seen is housing prices. We've seen, you know, the growth in demand for housing has increased faster than our supply of housing. And so that's, you know, really pushed prices high. So I think that that's, you know, the other piece that most people see as well. I also wonder about population growth during the pandemic. What have you seen in the last year or so? So we we received some initial uh, data from uh, the Census Bureau on estimates, not the census counts, but the estimates for 2020. And we've seen some downward pressure in uh, population growth. So right around 50,000 for this last year compared to 67,000 for the year before. We've seen downward pressure, um, fewer births. Uh, this did not create a baby boom. Initial data is showing that it has continued to put downward pressure on births. We've obviously seen the increase in deaths because of COVID. So that's uh, shrinking our growth simply with fewer births, more deaths. We're going to have to wrap up here, but that is fascinating. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. Elizabeth Garner is a state demographer with the Colorado Department of Local Affairs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. After seeing tens of thousands of its passengers stay home in 2020, the Regional Transportation District hopes that they'll be back on buses and trains this year. Still, there are a lot of unknowns. When will vaccines be distributed more widely? Will more people continue to work from home? RTD's new leader, Deborah Johnson, has been thinking about all those questions, and she joins me now. Hi, Deborah. Hi, how are you? Doing well, thank you. Deborah, let's start with a big question. How will RTD try to get more passengers back on board? Um, well, thank you very much for the question. I think it's a great one that has been top of mind for not only me as well as individuals within the organization, but across the nation holistically. Public transport here in this country um, has not had one incident where it's been qualified as being a super spreader. 
So I think if anything is showcasing and educating our various customer segments about what it is that we have to offer. So how much has changed about where people need to go and win in the pandemic? RTD has been seeing ridership of its downtown commuter lines drop off severely, but some of the bus lines through the heart of Denver, especially in working class neighborhoods, are still full. So what does that say about the evolving need for RTD and its future? Well, I think if anything, it really showcases that public transportation is interwoven into the vitality of the community. And clearly, it's been one in which we've had our essential employees transporting other essential workers. More transit service, it's a key part of Colorado's plan to cut emissions. Yet that plan didn't come with new funding for RTD. Can the agency afford to provide the service that the region needs? I think, if anything, we're going to have to be creative. While it is an unfunded mandate, I think public transportation has an obligation and a role to help reduce the carbon footprint because we have the opportunity to move massive amounts of people. Do you have plans to add more electric buses? We do. We are looking at that going forward because basically it is great for the environment and and more so great for people. I mean, you know, when you look at individuals and especially children in in black and brown communities that tend to be more asthmatic, I think it's incumbent upon us as being a good public servant that we have to take that into consideration. So yes, we actually have plans to add more battery electric buses in our fleet, but we're looking at it holistically because battery electric buses are much more expensive than one standard diesel bus because it's not only the bus in and of itself, but it's the infrastructure that supports that mechanism and the propulsion system. And let's not be Uh, remiss in stating that it's training. You know, we may have a diesel mechanic that's been on staff, you know, for a couple of decades, and it's ensuring that that individual knows how to become a technician and actually troubleshoot diagnostically using a laptop or some smart device as opposed to turning a wrench. Let's talk a little bit about Boulder and Longmont. They're still waiting on the rail line promised in 2004. The chair of RTD's board has invited Governor Jared Polis to a meeting next week to talk about that. What are you hoping to accomplish at that meeting? Well, I think if anything is having conversations. And what I said since the first day I came on this job on November 9th, it's just let's see what we can do collectively. Recognizing that time has passed since 2004, we need to figure out how do we go forward and what does that look like? And so having conversations is something that I invite, especially being you know new to this area and so forth. I do understand that people are basically wedded to the idea of having rail because it's something they supported. Uh, they've contributed to ensuring that that will come to fruition. However, we need to collectively think where we are recognizing the obvious in, in relationship to having um, viable funding to support the path forward. What can RTD do to rebuild trust with frustrated taxpayers who've been hearing that there will be conversations about this line for more than 15 years now? Well, I can speak for it from my vantage point. As you qualified, I have been here since November 9th. And while I recognize that there's various, uh, you know, populations, demographics, customer segments and taxpayers as a whole, that may be uh, somewhat frustrated by what was, I'm a firm believer, let's talk about what can be. Um, Because by having the conversation, I think it's paramount to understand where that frustration rests. Um, Because there's a lot of things that have happened holistically in reference to paying taxes and so forth. We're not going to be able to please everyone, but maybe we could come to some understanding 
where it's something that's palatable for everyone. And perhaps that could be a train. It could be some other modality. Um, I don't know what that is. And I'm not trying to sit here and pretend I'm a soothsayer to say uh, what it should be or what I know it to be. But I am open to having those, that dialogue because I need to ensure that I garner a better understanding of those pain points. So then we can have fresh conversations, which I believe can bridge the gap to forging a relationship where it can be more open and transparent, which I would hope would yield to greater sense of trust and honesty. When I think of the Denver area, it has many sprawling developments, large parking lots. How can RTD compete when driving often takes less time? Well, I think if anything, having those conversations, as I said before, working with stakeholders, partners, having dialogue more or less has to be done collectively because to entice people to get out of their cars, it's to see transit as a benefit. So if there's dedicated lanes, if there's you know signal preemption, queue jump lines, um, queue jump lanes, excuse me, and there are some benefit to taking transport, um, that will entice people to want to get out of their cars. But RTD doesn't have the auspices over you know all jurisdictions in reference to making that come to fruition. What specifically could other entities like cities in the state do to make transit more attractive? Well, I think basically there's a myriad of different things. I I don't think I can answer it in a global sense. But what I will say is recognizing what are the benefits holistically to the various constituencies. If it is reducing the carbon footprint, then basically maybe there could be something along the lines of having designated lanes, you know, during certain hours of the day. Maybe this community isn't collectively ready to go forward with eliminating a lane in totality, but perhaps it could be designated as a transit-only lane during specific times of the day. Perhaps there could be incentives going forward, you know, collectively for those that are utilizing transit. In Colorado, have you leaned on jurisdictions like the city or the state to make those sorts of changes to make transit more effective? We've had conversations. I mean, in my initial um, listening tours, as I, uh, you know, familiarize myself with the area, there is a willingness quite naturally with the people whom I've engaged. And when you talk about listening to people, some community groups have pushed RTD to make it free to ride buses and trains. Would you support that? Well, let's just be clear. We can have discussions about what that is because there's no such thing as free when we think about it holistically. So what does that mean? It gets back to my comments relative to having uh, discussions with partners and stakeholders to see how we could bring things to fruition. What do you want the Denver region and the state to know about RTD right now? That RTD is an agency that is about moving people. We are people moving people. And as I said, I'm a person in the people business. So we can't lose sight of that because without our customers, there would be no need for me and my team. So when we think about it in those terms, that's what our basic priority is. It's moving people so we can unleash them from their limitations to thrive in their livelihoods. And more so for me, if anything, um, recognizing that I come from a space in, in reference to not, you know, having a car, you know, growing up when I was in college, went to the University of California, Davis. I took Unitrans, which was the University of California, Davis's bus system. I walked. And I think it's important that we talk to people that are utilizing the system because, you know, I think it's important that we not only go from the bus stop, but to the boardroom. And we need to ensure that we hear the voices of the voiceless so we understand what it is that they need. 
Deborah, I want to thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, I've had uh, quite a bit of pleasure in speaking with you this morning. So thank you. Deborah Johnson is the new CEO and general manager of RTD. When we come back, remembering a civil rights champion in Pueblo. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Based in Washington, D.C., CPR News reporter Caitlin Kim brings news from the nation's capital to you. Denver area Democrat Diana DeGette says she got the call asking her to be an impeachment manager about 30 minutes before Speaker Pelosi made the announcement. She says she was deeply honored to be chosen alongside fellow Coloradan Joe Nagoose. I always tell people we're punching way above our weight in little Colorado. It's not the first time DeGette was served in the House. Trust the facts. Trust CPR News. Ruth Steele was a storied civil rights activist in Pueblo. To name a few of her accomplishments, she was instrumental in establishing Martin Luther King Jr. Day as a holiday in Colorado, and she transformed a retired orphanage into a museum honoring King. She died last month at the age of 85. Ray Brown considers her a mentor. Brown served in the U.S. Army. Now he's an educator and a Buffalo Soldier reenactor. Buffalo Soldiers were all black regiments in the U.S. Army from the mid-1800s to the 1950s. He's the president of the Pueblo Martin Luther King Jr. Holiday Commission. He also serves on the state commission for the holiday. Hi, Ray. Hi, how are you? Doing well, thanks. Ruth Steele, she died one day after Pueblo's annual MLK Day march. Was she able to participate one last time before she died? She was. As a fact, uh, my wife wanted to make sure that she was able to hear what was going on. So she connected her cell phone uh, with the cell phone in in Ruth's room, and and Ruth was able to hear us march outside of her door, as well as the entire ceremony. That's beautiful. I'm glad to hear that. The first time you met Ruth Steele, you overheard her voice in the library. What was it that drew you to her? She was uh, jovial. She she was laughing, and she was in, enjoying her time uh, taking people around and, and showing them the library here in Pueblo. And uh, it just seemed like this is a this is someone I need to meet. And when you met her, she ran the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Museum in Pueblo. She also worked on a display for the Aircraft Museum and the Tuskegee Airmen, the Black Air Force pilots during World War II. How did the two of you bond over this work in preserving and sharing Black history? Well, she invited me to come to the Air Museum and and uh, help her with doing the presentations. We. We had uh, middle school kids that would come into the museum, and uh, we offered that piece of history. Uh, the problem that I ran into was that um, kids didn't seem to understand the, yeah, the black pilots, they were black pilots. And so, what's the big deal about talking about the Tuskegee Airmen? That was their question. Uh, so, I, I, I thought, well, maybe we need to talk about the Buffalo Soldiers. And you actually are a reenactor. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I am. I, I belong to the uh, Buffalo Soldiers of the American West out of Brighton, Colorado. And that's something that you and Ruth shared is that passion for preservation and sharing and educating, right? Absolutely. That, that is the key point of our relationship. We, we both believed that we should gather as much history as we possibly could and, and interpret that history and deliver it to people so that they understood uh, uh, more about our African-American past. 
Ruth, she was instrumental in establishing MLK Day in Colorado, and that was even before the nation celebrated it as a federal holiday. She also founded the Pueblo Martin Luther King Jr. Holiday Commission. What did she tell you about her passion for recognizing King's life and his work? I I think she was uh, enamored with uh, Dr. King and all of the work that he did. Uh, Just like all of the rest of us, we were very saddened to to see him uh, leave us uh, in such a horrible way. Uh, And I think she wanted to make sure that that uh, part of his life was uh, maintained and and captured. And so we did. We we did everything we could to make sure that we kept his dream alive. And she received an award for that accomplishment of making sure that Colorado recognized MLK Day directly from Coretta Scott King in 1996. She must have been very proud of that. Oh, that is one of her highlighting uh, achievements. She is excited about the fact that uh, she was with uh, Coretta Scott King and, and uh, got to meet all the other main players in the civil rights movements. Uh, she was excited, yes. And you are now the president of the Pueblo Martin Luther King Jr. Holiday Commission. You started delivering Dr. King's speeches because of Ruth. How did she inspire you to do that? <laughs> well, she kept coming up with the programs. She said, we need to celebrate. This is the 50th anniversary of the assassination, and we need to do something special. Uh, so sh- she wanted me to go in and, and uh, read the, the speeches that Dr. King had delivered. And so I did. I, I went through and, and captured all of the speeches. I wrote them out, I, and I presented them all. Wow. It was wonderful. Wow. Let's talk a little bit about that museum where you got to know Ruth. At one point, it was a home for Black people in Pueblo who were orphaned or elderly. After that closed in the 60s, the buildings fell into disrepair. How did Ruth get involved? She was from Pueblo. And because she was from Pueblo, I think she had an opportunity to see that building and actually uh, be with uh, some of the kids that were orphaned and and grow up with those kids. And so I, I think when when the orphanage closed in 1963, uh, she watched its demise. She watched it uh, become dilapidated and worn down, and, and she just knew that wasn't right. So she put every effort into making sure that she got that building back and uh, turned it into something worthwhile. And she turned it into this museum in honor of King. What was on display there? What was the goal in her exhibits? The goal was was really not only to celebrate Dr. King. Uh, by the way, we also have the only known uh, coffin that is a replica of the coffin that Dr. King went home in. Um, we have that in the museum, but but we also uh, looked at the the kids that lived in the building before uh, Dr. King. Uh, you know, before any of that happened. So during the orphanage a- ages. Uh, the people that lived in the building, we tried to replicate the beds and, and the living environment that they were in at that time. Uh, we have a cook stove that they used in the building. Uh, we have an old refrigerator, which was one of the first plug-in refrigerators, uh, and a ringer washer and dryer. It's awesome. Oh, washer only, not a dryer. <laughs> uh, so. Still have to hang out the clothes on the line. Yeah, still had to hang the clothes on the line. She's also a collector. She had thousands of books, right? Absolutely. It was amazing because the uh, as the libraries were 
retiring some of the old African-American history books. Uh, they donated those books to the Pueblo Martin Luther King Holiday Commission, and and uh, we do have over a thousand books, yes. Wow. That museum, it closed a few years ago, not for lack of interest, but there were some issues around the tax status of the building. So where is all of that memorabilia now? Do you think it'll find a home in another Colorado museum? Oh, that is truly my hope. Uh, we're we have the materials all in a uh, igloo, which is on the Pueblo um, Army Depot. Uh, it's now the Chemical Depot in Pueblo, but uh, all of that is is stored in in a protected environment. And we're hoping to be able to find a building in the future and get it back up and operational. And even though that museum is closed, there is a statue that still stands outside of the building, the statue of MLK and Emmett Till. What's Ruth Steele's connection to that statue? Well, Ruth would tell you that is the only statue of Dr. King and Emmett Till in the entire universe, uh, which I always laughed about because, yeah, I'm sure that's true. Uh, But she's connected to that statue because it sat in Denver's city park for many years uh, before the people of Denver decided they wanted a replacement statue. Uh, When they got their replacement statue of Dr. King, which still stands in the uh, city park, Uh, they took the statue that we have in Pueblo and put it in the basement of the Fine Arts Building in Denver. Um, And through lots of negotiation, I think uh, uh, persistent uh, prodding, I think Ruth was able to uh, get uh, Mayor Wellington Webb to agree to send that statue to Pueblo. And so it was erected on the site next to the Lincoln home. and, And we're excited to have it there. And And uh, we enjoy all the visitors that come down and see it. Last summer, that statue was defaced with racist graffiti. Do you know how Ruth responded to that? I think Ruth and I were both extremely disappointed. Uh, We just couldn't believe that that would happen. But it did happen. And uh, as quickly as possible, we removed the paint that was sprayed on it and, and cleaned it up as best we could. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about Ruth Steele's life. She was a mentor to you. What was she like as a person? She was a kick. (laughs) She was so much fun. I loved going over and talking with her, uh, laughing with her, and enjoying uh, day-to-day life. Uh, She was was so open to people. Uh, She was always willing to give anything that they they could possibly need in order to to improve their life. Uh, She was was always willing to help and willing to to get involved and and just be a part of the community. She was a real doer. She saw the Black Lives Matter movement gain momentum near the end of her life. How did the two of you talk about that? Again, I I think Ruth and I, we we look at that and and we're just kind of disappointed that we're we're back at a point where it seems uh, the Black lives were not as important and and of course, we didn't want to see that happen. And we wanted to see things moving forward. And, and we wanted to see the momentum that we had gained continue going forward. And I, and I think um, we were very disappointed that we had to go to another uh, civil disobedient type uh, activity in order to bring the awareness of a major issue. Yeah. Ruth did also see Kamala Harris elected vice president, the first black person, first woman, and first South Asian person to fill that role. Did she tell you what she thought about that? Oh, she was very excited about uh, 
Vice President Harris. Uh, she was very excited about President Obama. Uh, she had an opportunity to meet President Obama, and I think she was looking forward to meeting Vice President Harris very soon. Ray, before we go, are there any other memories you wanted to share? You know, Ruth was, uh, she was a very important part of our community in, in another way. She helped create a food drive for, for people here in Pueblo. Uh, and Thanksgiving was, was always something that was fondly looked upon uh, because we provided as many as 600 different meals for people, including, as uh, Ruth always said, don't give me anything but butterball turkeys because that's what my people deserve. <laughs> and and uh, so the people always remembered Ruth and they uh, they still do today. And and we're just pleased to work with them uh, in a continuing effort as we go forward. I love that. Thank you so much for joining us, Ray, and for sharing your memories. Thank you very much for having me. Ray Brown remembering his mentor, Ruth Steele. Steele was a civil rights activist who lived in Pueblo, Colorado. Brown is an Army veteran and an educator who serves as president of the Pueblo Martin Luther King Jr. Holiday Commission. Colorado's woodlands are overstocked and ready to burn. Many foresters think tree thinning could help reduce the risk of wildfire. The problem? The projects often create massive piles of wood that few want. But it's not worthless to everyone. Here's CPR's Sam Brash. If there's a piece of wood out there in Colorado, James Gaspard will probably take it. We take waste wood, dead trees... Over there, you see a pile of old stumps and stuff that people bring us when they clean out their yards. Gaspard's company is Biochar Now. It operates a set of massive metal kilns in Weld County. Together, they look like a fleet of rusty UFOs touching down in the farmland below Long's Peak. Each kiln is taking 11 cubic yards of shredded trees, and we're converting it into carbon in a vacuum environment. The result is biochar, a charcoal-like material with the ability to suck up and store a lot of what's around it. Imagine we're a battery. We have special absorptive properties, and we also hold almost six times our weight in water. That means biochar can be a great addition to soil, helping it retain moisture and nutrients for crops. Now he's expanding from agriculture into other markets like industrial cleanup, animal feed. Cat litter. We have uh, soap. Oh my God, black soap. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to vouch for bathing with biochar, but I can say I never expected to see soap made from scrap wood. Tim Reeder works for the Colorado State Forest Service. He says entrepreneurs like Gaspard could be essential as Colorado confronts the threat of severe wildfires. That's because years of fire suppression have allowed fuels to build up in forests, but thinning them out is expensive. Just to treat 10% of our landscape that's the most prone to fire occurrence costs $4 billion. So that cost component has to be reduced. Reader says that used to be a lot easier in Colorado. Since the 1970s, many of the state's large lumber mills have closed. Environmental protections made it harder to cut trees on public land, and manufacturers learned to prefer faster-growing forests in the northwest and southeast. There are still a handful of mills in the state, but the trees from thinning projects, Reader says they're not the lumber industry's favorite thing. 
it's typically coming from these really dense areas, the forests. Um, so they're typically very small, bent stems, crooked, not a form that's conducive to processing into a solid product. But some companies are turning those drawbacks into selling points. At Golden West Pine Mill in Alt, Colorado, Andy Hines saws trees from a fire mitigation project. The wood was killed by pine beetles, which can turn whole mountainsides brown and far more combustible. But the wood itself, a fungus the beetle carries, stains it a nifty blue color, which is actually great for ornamental pieces. Well, actually, these particular logs um, are for a customer who does the wood mounts for uh, animals, stuffed animal heads. Heinz says his biggest challenge is finding raw material. Sure, there's lots of forests that could use thinning, but the U.S. Forest Service controls most of the land and offers complex contracts for mitigation work. It, it's just such a hassle for a small business like myself to try and do business with the federal government. That's why Heinz tends to work with private landowners who own about a third of the state's forested land. Governor Polis has requested $6 million for a state grant program to subsidize those projects. Joe Neguse, the congressman representing Boulder, has also requested far more money to help out on those federal projects. Business owners say subsidies help, but consumers also have to play a role. It is a major change in mindset. This is Andy Hawk with Timber Age Systems. The Durango startup makes cross-laminated timber, the technology behind a new class of wooden skyscrapers rising around the planet. His company is trying to scale the product down. Especially to use material coming from wildfire mitigation, is it's better for us to create a system that could be used in either single-family residential or small multifamily residential. But Hawk says his panels are still a long way from the aisles of Home Depot. We have built with 2x4s, 2x6s, 2x8s here in the United States for the last 150 years. And really, our building technologies have not changed that dramatically in that amount of time. It's a similar story across Colorado's emerging wood businesses. They could help make forests healthier and protect everyone from wildfires, but only if they go from startups to industries. Otherwise, they're just nibbling at the edges of a massive, overgrown problem. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Studies say an early childhood educator with a bachelor's degree has the biggest impact on a child's growth and development. But Colorado has a critical shortage of teachers who even have the minimum qualifications. Most don't have the time or money to get a bachelor's. In the next installment of her series, The Workforce Behind the Workforce, CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine examines one innovative pilot program. Hello, how are you? Brenda Perry is 58 years old, warm and friendly. She's been teaching rooms of three- and four-year-olds since 1986. But she's still not a lead teacher, the highest teacher rank where she works. That takes a bachelor's degree. Many in her field of early childhood education struggle to get even the minimum qualifications to be a teacher, two college classes and two years of experience. Because you have uh, people that are working all day and then they have family at night. And sometimes you have to work two jobs to make ends meet. But even with all her experience, she says she doesn't feel in the level of younger teachers coming straight into the field with a bachelor's. I feel like the bachelor degree would really boost my confidence. The barriers are significant. Access, cost, and the confidence to be a college student, particularly for marginalized communities. The position of higher ed has been, here's our nice bachelor's degree, come and get it. 
Rebecca Cantor says that strategy hasn't worked. Cantor is the dean of the University of Colorado Denver's School of Education and Human Development. So why not design a program that attacks those barriers one by one? Her team launched a pilot program this fall, the Place-Based Bachelor's Program. The beauty of the place-based approach is that we're building the quality of practice and teachers are earning while they learn. The college-level learning takes place at the child care center alongside the teacher with a coach, a senior member of the center hired by the university. Students are earning as they learn. Teacher Susan Hamami, who today is helping a child build a masterpiece, says there is another aspect to the program that doesn't make a bachelor's degree seem quite so daunting. It kind of gave me a little relief of, okay, I don't have to start completely from square one. <laughs> the university is trying to give students as much credit as possible for previous coursework and trainings, which early childhood teachers need to take frequently. The university paired with three high-caliber child care centers in Denver. Twenty teachers are in the pilot program. When they said we're turning college upside down, they were right. Because <laughs> it's just, it's so different. 27-year-old Luke Grober is happy there are no formal courses in a lecture hall. He can customize the program to his passions. Hey, I found this really cool book I want to read. Let me read this book and I can write a paper on it. Like, when do you ever have that opportunity Grober meets virtually with his coach and sometimes other university instructors for check-ins. He sends them pictures and videos to document his work and reflects on it with them. For example, he does an activity outside that helps promote connections and attachment. Toddlers get their baby dolls ready for naps as they sing a song. One day he noticed children were picking up logs and holding them like babies. It wasn't until when I was having the discussion with my professor that I was like, wait a minute. The children were making connections. They discussed what that meant and how he might extend the activity to stimulate thinking. Students in the program say the on-site discussions help them to understand children more deeply and become more observant. So today I just kind of stopped and watched instead of trying to guide behavior. In a recent Zoom class, one educator talks about all the time teachers spend policing aggressive behaviors and the different approach she tried. I didn't get obsessive about language and using the parallel talk and the self-talk. It was probably the best interactions with children that I have seen in months. Providing on-the-job support could mean fewer teachers quitting. Brenda Perry sees some teachers entering the field straight from school lacking the skills to handle challenging behaviors. A child that's dealing with domestic violence, do you know how to really deal with that child when he comes to school? You know, a child that doesn't have enough food, what can you do to support the child? What can you do to support the parent? When a teacher quits, the three centers in the project say it costs them on average $17,000 to replace that teacher. That money could instead be plowed back into teacher salaries. Meantime, CU Denver hopes to get funding to replicate their place-based model elsewhere in Colorado, creating partnerships between child care centers and regional colleges. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. Before we go, 
Humor me while I talk about my dog, Flossie. She's recently developed an entire stretch routine before her walks. It started out as a little downward dog, but now it is a whole front-to-back flow. It brings me joy, and whether or not you have a pet, we want to offer you a little joy and escape in our next Turn the Page event. That's our virtual book club. We're reading a novel about animals. My colleague Ryan Warner is hosting. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Avery. What book are we reading? It's called Other People's Pets by Boulder author R.L. Mazes. And as you mentioned, it's a novel. And I chose it plainly as a pandemic escape. I mean, you've made it through an election, an insurrection, a pandemic, an economic downturn. And so, readers, you deserve a break. So it's about pets. What else? Well, the main character, Lala, dreams of becoming a veterinarian, but her unconventional family life gets in the way. Even though she has to drop out of veterinary school, Lala remains connected to pets. You see, she's an animal empath, meaning she feels in her own body what animals feel. That came about while I was writing. And when I realized that she was an animal empath, I got so excited. As a writer, I was excited because I thought, what a fantastic experience it's going to be to write this book and imagine what her life is like with this talent. But also I thought, wow, readers um, might really enjoy spending 300 pages with a character who can feel what animals feel, who see the world almost through the eyes of animals. And I understand why R.L. Mazes was so excited when this idea occurred to her. I mean, I would love to get into my cat Bob's head when he's zooming around the house in the morning as if I'm a monster trying to chase after it. <laughs> I just want to feel as relaxed as Flossie looks when she's stretching. Yeah. Well, give us the details for Turn the Page. Okay, this is indeed a chance to read a book and then meet the author. So get your hands on a copy of Other People's Pets by R.L. Mazes of Boulder. And then join us February 27th, a Saturday morning, for a virtual chat with R.L. You'll be able to ask questions, and we'll record the whole thing to air later on the radio. Tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. Thanks, Ryan. So welcome. Ryan Warner hosts Turn the Page with Colorado Matters later this month. The selection is Other People's Pets by R.L. Mazes. And that website, again, is cpr.org slash turn the page. That's Colorado Matters for today. And I just want to say thank you to the team that brings this show to air. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Alexandra McMahon, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.